me, verse 13, reminds us of the conference in 2 Samuel chapter 17. And so out of this harrowing experience, David learned some valuable lessons about uh, his life and about who and what the character of God is and where his focus lie. You know, for you and I, as we see this happen in Psalm 31, this roller coaster of emotions and this going from the depths of lament to the heights of praise, that is not unusual experience for the Christian in this life in the 21st century either. Most of us are in a jumble of emotions and a cross-section of experiences and adversities and wonderful things that happen to us and our families And yet there are six words in this psalm, and that's where we're going to focus today. One phrase out of this whole poem, and these six words are an affirmation of the person who knows himself to be in Christ, for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Despite the disasters, the difficulties, the things that we don't understand in this life, we are under the care of the Almighty God. In verse 15, towards the center of the psalm, the first stanza, the first phrase is, My times are in your hand. My times are in your hand. In 1889, there was a young man named Dan Crawford. He had accepted Christ uh, in Great Britain at the age of 16, and now he was 19, and he went to Central Africa as a missionary. And he ventured there for the first time, and he served as a missionary in Central Africa for more than three decades, and he learned the language. He translated the Bible into the Lubasanga language uh, there. And when Crawford died in 1926, the Old Testament had just been printed that he had translated into that African language. And the national Christians that had come to know Christ as Savior through his ministry put a copy of that translation under his head when they buried him. In fact, I understand you can still see his grave if you were to travel uh, to Central Africa. But this psalm, Psalm 3115, when Crawford uh, was translating this into the language, he was having a particularly difficult time with verse 15, this first stanza, my times are in your hands. And he finally decided the best way to put it in the language of those people at that time would would be to translate it like this, quote, All of my life's whys, all of my life's whims, all of my life's wheres, and all of my life's wherefores are in God's hands, unquote. He was releasing all of the big questions and all the small questions to this God who is the bigger than all of the adversities we face. And so Dan Crawford, I think, got a pretty good translation of that phrase that we read here this morning. And so this certainty of my times are in your hands will bring an equilibrium to your life. If you find yourself out of balance and struggling, it is good to reflect on. And in this new year, I want to challenge us again to focus in 2016 on God's character, on his sovereignty, and on his providential care of you personally. That will change your life and how you view the difficulties that will face you this year and your family. So as I reflected on this verse, I have found nine truths. They're extrapolated from the verse. This is a little different from an exposition of the text. These are nine truths which emerge as we look at this simple statement, my times are in your hand. We will go through them rather quickly, but there are at least nine of them. We might be able to come up with some more. But the first truth I found is we are not trapped in the grip of blind force. 
We are not trapped in the grip of blind force. There's a blind, you know, the blind impersonal force, uh, which has been referred to simply as nature, is uh, for all of the centuries just as it is today. All we have to do is turn on the weather channel, and they will talk about Mother Nature and her forces. And we've seen examples of that just in the last few weeks down in Garland and Rowlett, Texas, where we used to live, the tornadoes which destroyed so many homes and took the lives of a number of people. And we saw this, what we would call Mother Nature, on the loose. And we are not in the grip of a blind force. In fact, I was in conversation with uh, Dr. Scott Horrell, who teaches at Dallas Seminary, who lives right down there on I-30, near I-30 in uh, Rowlett, Texas. And I called to see if they were okay. And he actually grew up in this church, uh, uh, Scott Horrell did. And uh, he related back that all of their family was there for Christmas. And so they crammed when they got the tornado warnings. All 14 of them were in the central bathroom because there's no basements in those houses. They're just on a slab. And so when a tornado comes through, you want to be in the central bathroom with mattresses over the top of you. We only had to do that once down there. But Scott said they were untouched. But just the other side of the freeway on I-30 is where the tornadoes went through and destroyed so much and took lives. But this notion is profoundly evident in our world today. It's called pantheism. It is a view that uh, we are just subject to nature. Mother nature and the world is against us, this blind force which there is no control over. And so we need to be aware of that. We are not trapped in the grip of blind force. One of the most distinctive features of the Christian today is the way in which we are to articulate our view of the world. The believer says, my times are in your hands. I am not trapped by a blind force. Secondly, we are not tossed about on the ocean of chance. I always throw my rubber brick at the television when I watch the news when somebody's in a, you know, some kind of an accident and they get out unscathed and the newscaster says, boy, wasn't he lucky? Throw the rubber brick at the TV. You know, there's no such thing as luck. The Bible declares our times are in his hand. We are not tossed about on the ocean of chance. In the movie Dead Poets Society, the character that the actor Robin Williams played reported uh, to in the movie the successes of his past students and tells his current students to do their best in the moment they have. In one sense, that's a fine piece of advice he gives, but that it's important to use the time that we have But the underlying notion, though, is that we must make good use of our time because yesterday's time is gone and there may be no tomorrow. For the believer in Jesus Christ, there is always tomorrow. Whether or not we pass away physically, we always have everlasting life. It is in our possession. So if you are ever tempted to think that you're unlucky or lucky, remember that a Christian responds that my times are in your hand I'm not trapped by blind faith, and I'm not tossed about on a sea of chance. The third truth we can extrapolate here is we are being trained in the school of God's providence. God's providence. We are being trained in that school. It's a Puritan concept. The Puritans had a theology that was weighted heavy to the providence of God. And the providence was not a word that we use often in our contemporary speech, unless we're talking about a city. Uh, but uh, Jerry Bridges, the, our contemporary writer, Jerry Bridges, has a, probably the best short definition of providence, God's providence that I've ever seen. There are much longer definitions, but this one is memorable. God's providence, quoting Jerry Bridges, 
God's providence is his constant care for and his absolute rule over all his creation for his own glory and the good of his people. Did you catch the absolutes in there? God's providence is his constant care for and his absolute rule over all his creation for his own glory and the good of his people. When we affirm that truth that God has not abandoned the world like the deists would say, like Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin believe that God just wound the world up and then walked away, uh, we are not at the, at the mercy of blind chance or, or a blind force. Uh, we have been, not been absorbed in his creation. Rather, the Christian believes that God is distinct in what he has made, and he's working everything out for his glory and for the good of his people. It's strange, it seems strange to us, but the sovereign creator fashions everything in time and history to this eventuality. He will redeem for himself a people who are his very own. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ for your everlasting life here this morning, he has redeemed you for his very own. And it brings glory to him, and it is certainly a good thing for you and I. What does this mean for us now? We are not trapped in the grip of blind force. We're not being tossed about by chance. It means we're being trained in the school of God's providence. It means our times are in his hand. The fourth truth is prosperity should not be an occasion for pride. We live in a very prosperous nation. Now, you may feel very poor, that you don't have a lot of the world's wealth, and yet most Americans, or most all Americans, are richer than most of the world. In fact, I read an article this week that <clears throat> the 80 richest billionaires in the world control over half of the world's wealth. Now, I didn't check that on uh, Snopes or anything like that, but if that's true, that's incredible that uh, 80 billionaires control more wealth than 3.5 billion people of the poorest in the world. But the problem with <clears throat> prosperity is there's an occasion for pride. And uh, if we are proud about what we've accomplished, we can become arrogant and we never come to grips with God's providence the person who delights in saying, I did it my way, or puffs out their chest congratulating themselves, is on the wrong end of discovering what it means to the, about the doctrine of God's providence. To the degree that I boast about what I've achieved is an indication that I've not come to terms with the fact that my times are in his hands. And it's an indication that I don't appreciate the words of Scripture, where in Deuteronomy it's 8, it reminds us, but you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you the power to make wealth. It is by his providential hand. So when that idea and that doctrine of providence takes root in our hearts, we begin to say, my times are in your hands. The fifth truth we see is uncertainty should not be the occasion of panic. Uncertainty should not for the Christian be an occasion for panic. Now, 2016 is an election year, and it looks pretty bleak to me personally anyway, no matter what direction you go there. Uh, but, you know, we should not use this as an occasion to panic. Uh, what, you know, the question is, is what do you put your head on at night? Well, you say, well, I put my head on a pillow before I go to sleep. But what do you really rest your head on at night? The only thing we can put our heads on in order to sleep is the providence of God. The Puritans, again, quoting the Puritans, always said, providence is a soft pillow for anxious heads. 
And that is one thing I try to remember consciously before I go to sleep, is to remember that God is providential. He's working all things out. He's in control of all things, working it out for his glory and for the good of his people. And so when I worry, when I get anxious, I can usually trace it to a loss of confidence in the doctrine of providence. So if I can say my times are in his hands, my head can be resting on the soft pillow of providence for my anxious head, and he is still in control. The sixth thing we extrapolate from this is adversity must not become an occasion for self-pity. Adversity must not become an occasion for self-pity. I start seeing uh, the, the Christian gathering up and becoming more of a fortress again because of the uncertainty of our times. Uh, most of us have lived through times of anguish and pools of tears. And the fact is, is that with the passage of time or the change in circumstances, we may look back over our shoulders and begin to recognize is there are no trying and tragic circumstances that God has not uh, sovereignly approved and permitted. That is tough to wrap our minds around, especially for people in Garland, Rowlett, Texas, who lost loved ones or lost their homes and everything they own. That is a tough one, but it is by faith placed in God and knowing that he is sovereign and providential. We don't know the end of the story yet. Ken Greyer has uh, given us the following in his book, Shaped by the Cross, He writes that Michelangelo, the great artist, was born in 1475 in Tuscany, Italy. And he became, along with Leonardo da Vinci, the creative force behind the Italian Renaissance. And over his lifetime, Michelangelo produced a body of work that is still with us. And his most monumental achievement by most art critics is his sculpture, this famous statue of Mary holding the adult Jesus who was crucified in her lap. And it's called the Pieta. Maybe some of you have seen that if you've traveled uh, over there. The Pieta was commissioned in 1498, and not only was it planned to be a work unsurpassed in its beauty, but it was to be unsurpassable. For the sculpture, Michelangelo searched the quarries for just the right kind of stone. He often spent months in the city of Carrera where they would quarry out the marble, and he oversaw the extraction and arranged the transport of the perfect block of marble for this proposed statue. And once this cube of marble arrived at his studio, the young Michelangelo went to work. He labored over it for almost two years, sweating over it in the sweltering heat of summer and shivering over it in the biting cold of winter. He was a man on a mission. And from its overall structure to its smallest detail, the Pieta is a work of unsurpassed beauty. A contemporary of Michelangelo wrote at the time, it would be impossible for any craftsman or sculptor, no matter how brilliant, ever to surpass the grace or design of this work. Michelangelo worked, if he worked this passionately on the Pieta, how much more passionately must God be working on us? We are God's workmanship. He has planned us. He has got his hand upon us. Our times are in his hand. And God is the impassioned artist until that work Uh, until it's finished. He tells us that he's working for us to become Christ-like, getting us ready for heaven. The way God works is similar to the way Michelangelo worked. Michelangelo used different tools to achieve different results. He used the hammer, which was his primary tool, along with a variety of chisels to shape the block. Some chisels had serrated edges, others were flat. 
Each had its own role in shaping the marble in its own special use, however slight. He also had an assortment of rasps and abrasives. And as we look at that, we think those would be the tools of a torturer, so it seems. And from the perspective of an onlooker, Geyer writes, when the artist begins his work, every blow from the hammer seems random, a random act of violence. Every bite of the chisel, a senseless act of vandalism. From the perspective of the slab, the blows it receives are even more difficult to comprehend. In the same way, the circumstances of our life, which God uses to craft our character, are often jarring, sometimes difficult to understand and difficult to endure. But we are the work of his hands, which is to say we are roughly quarried stone on our way to become a work of art in God's hands. The work he dreams of, the masterpiece, becoming Christ-like. We must not use adversity to be an occasion for self-pity. God is sovereignly at work in each one of our lives. The seventh truth we find is there is a responsibility to be faced. In all of this great giftedness that believers receive in his grace and mercy, uh, Psalm 31.15 does not relieve us of the need to accept personal responsibility for our lives. Although the Lord is ruling over all things according to his purposes and his plan, you and I are still responsible to him in all that we are and all that we do. I'm not responsible in that sense for your life as you are not responsible for my life. Each one of us has to be sensible in our decision-making. You know, there seems to be two extremes in Christianity. There's kind of the uh, throw my hands up, I can't do anything. It's the whatever, uh, or it's a furious activity to try to be righteous and good in our own flesh. In our house, we have a rocking chair and we have a treadmill. And I much prefer the rocking chair. Uh, But really, when you look at both of those devices, uh, they don't go anywhere, do they? You can have a lot of activity or you can rest or have a lot of activity, uh, but at least the treadmill makes, makes me feel like I'm accomplishing something. But the reality remains that neither one is going to get me to a goal that is out there. Uh, there are often people in, lives, in our lives that just want to sit down and wait for the Lord to act. And then there are others who just consume their lives with some kind of frantic activity. Well, there is a balance in between, and it's the balance of the fragrance of Christ working in and through us that we can have a restfulness and we can be about God's work in his providence, and it doesn't remove us from the realm of responsibility. He partners with us in that, that God is at work around us, in and through us. The eighth truth we see is humility needs to be fostered. Humility needs to be nurtured and cultivated. I go back to uh, Genesis 41. You know, Pharaoh wanted his dream interpreted, and Joseph was there. He had heard Joseph was skilled as an interpreter of dreams. And you, know, you may not remember Joseph's response, but it was quite humble. He said in Genesis 41:16, I cannot do it, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. We live in a day and age of selfies, don't we? And it's quite a phenomena, but... How much humility is involved in all of this social contact, I wonder, as we try to make our perfect lives appear on Facebook or Twitter or wherever it is, when in reality, it's not like that at all. Humility must be fostered. And finally, there is security to be found and enjoyed. When you put your anxious head on the soft pillow of providence, 
There is security to be, to be found. Calvin, John Calvin wrote, his solace, speaking of Christ, is to know that his heavenly Father so holds all things in his power, speaking of us, so rules by his authority and so will, so governs by his wisdom that nothing can befall except he determines it. That's not to say that we like everything that happens to us. It is to say, though, that we need not be concerned that we contracted some sickness we're not supposed to get. Here is the security our Father has it under control when we rest in his providence. So at the turn of the new year, as I'm fascinated by this concept of time, I'm also fascinated by the opportunities, the potentials of a new year that lay before us. I think of the concept of the vineyard. I'll leave you with this. Uh, since we have lived here, I've noticed a lot of uh, former orchard land has been turned into vineyards as we drive around. And vineyards are fascinating things. I don't understand anything about them. But I've noticed they're all, the ones I've seen anyway, are very neat, orderly, and each row is very straight, and they're very carefully tended. And I realize that vineyards just don't spring up out of nothing. There are people who tend them. Someone is behind them. Someone is caring for them. If we were to go to the book of Proverbs in chapter 24, verses 30 through 34, I'll summarize for us, it for us here. It says, the writer of Proverbs says, I was going past a vineyard and it was a mess. There were thorns all over the place. The grounds were covered with weeds and the walls were falling down. And why was that such a powerful statement in the book of Proverbs? It's because we need to understand the trouble and the problem behind this proverb. We have to understand that in the ancient Middle East, a piece of land that was capable of growing crops was one of the most valuable things in the world. To be the owner of a vineyard was to be blessed with an opportunity of a lifetime. You know, everybody gets a vineyard. Everybody gets a vineyard. When you were born, you got a vineyard. You got your body, your mind, your will, and some relationships. You've got some financial resources and the chance to do something. You've got a soul. Everybody gets a vineyard. And that vineyard is your one and only shot on this planet. Whether you're five years old or 85 years old, it's an opportunity of a lifetime. And you don't need to care for it all on your own. God is willing to help and partner with you. But God does not force any of us to take action and care for our vineyard. This is why this proverb says, I was walking past the vineyard and I thought of what it might have been. We don't want to live this life and think about what it might have been. The, uh, the, the proverb goes on to say, he sees that the vineyard could have think, been a thing of beauty it could have been a source of pride, joy, and income to the owner. It could have been a blessing to everybody around it. Because in that ancient culture, a place that grew things that people could eat or drink from was a blessing to everybody. But the vineyard, the writer observed, wasn't any of those things. It fell tragically short of what it might have been. The writer wonders why. Was there some catastrophe? Was there a drought, a flood, a fire, some other disaster? No, it was just sheer negligence on the part of the owner of the vineyard. He had no idea what he had. He was throwing away the opportunity of a lifetime. And that's the strange power of entropy, is that we don't even recognize it's happening. It's sheer neglect, and people throw their lives away because of it every day. 
So we have these fantasies that we live by. We want a perfect marriage. We want a perfect circle of friends. We want a perfect career, perfect education, uh, perfect church. If I can't have that, then I won't do anything. The writer here in Proverbs says we must start with reality. Work the land as that is your land, your vineyard, your body, your life, your relationships, your work, because the vineyard is all you have. If it's ever going to be different, you won't, it won't be because the vineyard fairy comes and sprinkles you know, vineyard dust on it. <clears throat> it will be because you ask God to help you. It will be because you ask him, what's the next step you want me to take? And that's the challenge for me personally as I thought about this, is this year, 2016, as God gives us our days, what is the next step for you personally, for me personally? What is it that I need to care for and tend for that I've been ignoring in my own life, in my own vineyard? What is it in your vineyard that must change? Remember, my times are in your hands. Our times are in his hands. And we don't need to worry. We just need to be about his business. We are not at the mercy of arbitrary and personal forces. We are in the hands of our heavenly Father. He's the one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who said to us, Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me with all your burdens, all your fears, all your panics, and all your anxieties, and all your heartaches, and all your disappointments. I want you to come to me and take my yoke upon you. Live underneath my jurisdiction. Live underneath my hand. Because my yoke is easy, my burden is light, and you will find rest for your souls. Is that not a message for us in 2016? My times are in your hand. The Father really does know best. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this passage out of the Psalms for King David, for everything.